X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, August 12th. Thanks to Tom Coughlin for the kind note. Love The Local and The Quick Six, which oddly aren't so quick, but amazingly done. Thanks very much for that kind word and for your roughly accurate description of the maybe not so quick, quick six. Tom Coughlin also offered this. Our town, like other coastal tourist towns, is getting hammered with tourists. The locals are scared, angry, and not very kind sometimes to strangers. Sometime, maybe one of your august writers might do a piece on the dangerous impact on these little rural hamlets. Or maybe you have. If you have a story idea, or a comment, or a kind word, you can email the local at xray.fm. Today, back in the day, August 12, 1865, Joseph Lister performed the first antiseptic surgery. Before that, you just had septic surgery, or rather, surgery that could give you sepsis, the kind that might more surely kill you than whatever you were getting the anti-antiseptic surgery for. By the way, Joseph Lister did not invent Listerine, Joseph Lawrence did, but he named it after Lister. Think about that timeline for a moment, by the way. The Civil War ended in April of that same year. The death toll in the Civil War has been calculated to be as many as 750,000 human beings. As many as two-thirds of those deaths came from infection and disease. Many of those infections came from war wounds. And again, just to remind you of the context, just months after the end of that Civil War, antiseptic surgery was performed for the first time. Also today, back in the day, August 12, 1851, Isaac Singer was granted a patent for his sewing machine. No, Isaac Singer did not invent the sewing machine. He did figure out it would be more reliable if the shuttle moved in a straight line rather than in a circle, and with a straight needle rather than a curved one. Isaac Singer went on to start one of the first American multinational businesses. He mass-produced sewing machines, getting his price down to $10 from $100. That was $2,500 in today's money, like buying a 15-year-old Accord or a zero-year-old MacBook Pro or being a matching giver for an X-ray fund drive. Singer also made his sewing machines available by installment payments, helping to bring the modern context of consumer credit, where more and more Americans buy material things beyond the money in their bank accounts, allowing consumer culture to grow, even as the gap in actual purchasing power of Americans is the biggest it's been in 100 years. To be clear, that's not all because of the sewing machine guy. The Singer sewing machine could sew 900 stitches per minute, far better than the 40 per minute of an accomplished seamstress. To be clear, that didn't mean a more relaxed sewing world. It led to the industrialization of the garment industry, and that in turn has led to the international sweatshop culture and garment making of the modern world. Enjoy your t-shirt and jeans, everybody. By the way, Isaac Singer spent his early years as a traveling stage performer. He also had 24 kids, and he acknowledged 18 of them. And by the way, August 12th back in the day, relative to other summer days, in our view, a slower news day. Today, we'll move on with your quick six news headlines. We'll have a field interview from Barb Seaman at KXRW from recent protests in Stevenson, Washington, and an interview with Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, reflection on the last 75 days and the new ballot measure on independent police review. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. The votes are in, at least most of them. As of 11 p.m. on Tuesday night, Dan Ryan had 76,673 votes and Loretta Smith had 72,543 votes, about a 4,000-vote gap with about 20,000 ballots left to count. And assuming the accuracy of those numbers, that means Loretta Smith would need to win the remaining ballots like 12,000 to 8,000, or as much as about 60% of the remaining vote. News organizations have been a little bit reticent to call the race for Dan Ryan, but there are your numbers. More will be coming in tomorrow's local. And the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday temporarily blocked Judge McShane's ruling that it reopened the door to the redistricting measure that would take district line drawing from the legislature and give it over to a commission. On July 23rd, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals 
refused to put a hold on McShane's ruling, prompting Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. A reminder that nearly 150,000 signatures were required by July 2nd for the initiative to be moved forward. But the proponents of the initiative, who we've spoken to on the local, said the pandemic made it really hard to gather all those signatures. And with the ultimate agreement of the Republican Secretary of State of Oregon, McShane had ordered the state either to allow the ballot initiative outright or to extend the deadline to August 17th, that's pretty soon, and lower the signature threshold to just under 59,000 signatures. As I said before, stay tuned for more on this one. It's the most significant measure that might be on Oregon's ballot. Mike Schmidt, the Multnomah County DA, will drop many of the charges against protesters. On Tuesday, the district attorney announced a new policy aimed at restorative justice. Going forward, county prosecutors will only press charges for certain cases, such as intentional property damage or theft. Charges of interference with a police officer or disorderly conduct will be dropped. Those charges make up a majority of the over 500 cases brought against protesters. Just this last Monday, seven were arrested on interference and disorderly conduct charges. The DA's office is also going to partner with Lewis and Clark Law School to educate arrestees on expunging their records. This shift comes as arrests of protesters have increased. Over the past week, the Portland Police Bureau arrested three journalists and an ACLU legal observer, despite a restraining order. Mike Schmidt just took office only a week ago and already has taken a pretty big step towards de-escalation of this stuff. Police Chief Chuck Lavelle did not directly address the new policy. He did state that protesters are often arrested after, and I'm quoting, hours of various crimes being committed. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. We popped over 300 new cases again, 302 new cases, according to the health authority, 11 new deaths. Monday saw a decline in cases down to 227. We now have 21,774 cases and 368 deaths. Multnomah County with 60, Washington County with 41, Clackamas County with 23, Umatilla County continuing to improve with only 16 new cases. However, another outbreak was reported there, this time at a Smith Foods facility. Another coronavirus news, after some confusion regarding the state's reporting of positivity rates, Oregon is adopting a standardized metric. The positivity rate is a big metric when determining whether to reopen schools. Statewide, the rate must be at or below a 5% rate of positive tests for schools to reopen. The latest data shows Oregon at about 5.4%. Those numbers have been difficult to track due to minor differences in how they get calculated. For example, the health authority often reports varying positivity rates on the same day due to differences in the dates used for calculation. Now, Oregon plans to calculate positivity rates using only the date someone is first swabbed for a test. However, the figures will likely shift after they've posted due to testing delays. Some tests are still delayed a week or more before results are received. Three Christian schools are suing Governor Kate Brown. Guess why? They don't want limits on faith-based gatherings. Currently, religious gatherings, like other gatherings, cannot exceed 25 people. So Horizon Christian School, McMinnville Christian Academy, and Life Christian School are suing and saying they should be treated like public universities, which are allowed to reopen under certain guidelines. They claim the limit on faith-based gatherings is irrational and unenforceable. To be clear, while public universities are allowed to reopen under conditions, most K-12 schools in Oregon will remain closed until at least November. And those three schools suing Governor Brown all serve students in that K-12 range. And in Grants Pass, people experiencing homelessness can no longer be fined for sleeping outside. I don't know if you remember our interview with Ed Johnson from the Oregon Law Center. We talked about this very case. And now a federal judge has ruled that Grants Pass was violating the Eighth Amendment when it fined people for sleeping outside. The ruling follows a similar one in 2018 in Boise, which said that cities cannot criminalize sleeping outside without providing alternatives. The city plans to appeal. So far, the U.S. Supreme Court has already declined to hear the Boise case. 
The fines imposed on people without homes have been a longtime source of complaint in Grant's past, and those fines are a common practice in other cities across the country as well. And the judge behind the decision, U.S. Magistrate Judge Mark Clark, sharply criticized the fines. Here's the quote. Let us not forget that homeless individuals are citizens just as much as those fortunate enough to have a secure living space. He also wrote the fines create a cycle of incarceration. And some good news. The Oregonian newspaper is organizing a kind thing. Every year they hold a holiday fundraising campaign, the proceeds which go to a select group of nonprofits. For 2020, they're looking to support nonprofits related to racial and social justice, as well as student services, mental health, and medical bills. Donations can be made through the Oregonians' GoFundMe page. And some other good news. The Portland Timbers have won a trophy. They won the MLS's back tournament. Most people watching the thing didn't think they had a chance of winning it. Well, they did win it. So congratulations to the Timbers. And some congratulations are due the Blazers and to Damian Lillard. After Lillard missed two free throws and the Blazers lost an important game in their run to try to make it into the play-in tournament or maybe even the playoffs themselves, Damian Lillard has scored 112 points in two games, scored 51 and then 61. Means now he has three games this season of over 60 points. The only other person ever to do that is Wilt Chamberlain. He's also the only Blazer ever to have back-to-back 50 games. And now the Blazers look like they're going to be in the play-in tournament, and if they win their next game, they're going to be the eighth seed, meaning they have a good shot at making the full-on playoffs. Go Blazers. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. The region continues to protest each night. Here is Barb Seaman from partner station KXRW with another voice from the protests. In today's interview, Barb takes us to Stevenson, Washington. For KXRW Radio, I'm Barb Seaman with a report from Skamania County, Washington. Around 75 people came together for a Black Lives Matter protest on Sunday. They gathered in front of the county courthouse on the main drag through Stevenson. Many people from the Portland and Vancouver area pass through this little town of 1600 when they visit the gorge to go hiking or surfing. Social Springer, who organized the event, spoke to me about the people in Skamania County. They are individuals who live out here because they appreciate nature, they appreciate hard work, they appreciate um, quiet and space, but it's also a lot of individuals who, you know, we have a lot of people who live in our community who've been here for a long time, five generations, six generations. The Stevenson protest started up in early June when a high school teenager named Willie Lance stood on the corner alone. His dad, Chris Lance, is now one of the regulars. And he just was upset with what was happening, and he decided to go ahead and show that Black Lives Matters, even here in the, you know, the heart of the gorge, where our minority population is next to, you know, nothing number-wise, but it doesn't mean you don't count. And so, yeah, he was out here by himself, and then other people saw him, uh, a woman who was in her 60s, who, or even 70s, she had protested in the 60s. She's like, I'm not going to let that young man be by himself. She came down. It just grew from there. It was organic and it was great. It's gone from as small as one person being Willie and as big as I think we've had for, for Black Lives Matter specifically for standing up for these. Um, we've been around the 100 mark, but, you know, we have a healthy community that loves to protest. So My sign says it could have been my grandson or my granddaughter. Black Lives Matter. When hate is loud, love cannot be silent. Don't allow racism to persist in Skamania County. He's peacefully pissed off. 
I understand that I will never understand. However, I stand. Black Lives Matter. It says the hate, the hate you give, the hate we give to each other, is unreal. As a black kid, I have to ask why. My sign says we stand with you. Emotions were heightened for the protesters this time after news appeared on social media of a racist incident in town last week. I understand that an African-American family was patronizing one of our stores. A resident accosted them, used racial, racial epithets, and lit fireworks off at them. That's racism. From what was said on the Facebook post from the owner of that business, that they were a family that's black, and they were assaulted, and so... That's not okay. A.J. Smith held a sign that said, if you want your community to thrive. All, all are welcome. Black Lives Matter. I mean, everybody's struggling economically, and if we don't welcome all races, whether they're immigrants and whether they're black or Asian or whatever, I mean, we're all human, and we're all here to spend money in our county. And if you're yelling and screaming at them and, and you know, you're hurting the businesses as well, but it's not economic. This is... This is about just human society and treating people with respect and equality. I mean, this is 2020, not 1800s and not early 1900s. I mean, we should be evolving to a point where everybody's welcome in Skamania County. All communication is valid, right? It's a honk is still a honk, a wave is still a wave, a thumbs down is a thumbs down. That means that someone is acknowledging what we're saying. I'll take it. Tell me about the response you've had with people going by. Have you had a lot of thumbs downs? I, you know, I'm not a person that's like counting where I'm like thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs down. What I am doing is being aware of safety and what that looks like for our community. So people can be naysayers or be yaysayers, but um, are they adding to the conversation, to the dialogue and to being anti-racist? So a thumbs down is still, still means that they'll go home and talk about it. Ideally, it'd be awesome if everyone was like, oh, this is awful. The laws are awful. Our culture is awful to black people. We should actively change that in the next six months. That's not going to happen. But what can happen is continued conversations and continued visibility because black lives matter. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. For KXRW and X-Ray FM, I'm Barb Seaman in Stevenson, Washington. Black Commissioner Joanne Hardesty joins The Local with reflections on the last 75 days of protests and an introduction to a new ballot measure presenting an independent review committee on Portland Police. Here are DJ Ambush, Jefferson Smith, and Commissioner Hardesty. Portland has experienced 75 nights of protests in support of black lives, demanding reforms to policing and looking to a new vision for public safety. Portland City Council has decreased the police budget and is continuing to explore reforms. Today, we have Commissioner Joanne Hardesty to give us an update on the work of Portland City Council. I'm DJ Ambush with the numbers. I'm Jeff Smith. Thanks for being here. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, gentlemen. Uh, Yes, what an interesting 70 plus days in Portland. Um, we're in the midst of, we had four crises, now we're only down to three, right? When we had the federal goons here. Um, and every single night, we still have people taken to the street, 
uh, saying Black Lives Matter, saying we need to defund the police and invest in community services. Um, when I was here before, I don't know if I mentioned that we got 70,000 emails on defunding the police. 70,000. I mean, I haven't gotten 70,000 emails combined on all the issues that I work on at City Hall. So the magnitude of the community interest is just phenomenal. How many do you normally get on a given day? How many emails does your office receive? You know, if I get 10, 20 emails about an issue, it's important, right? Uh, 70,000 emails just totally blows your mind. Now, clearly some land use issues, I'll get a couple of hundred emails. Um, but I've never gotten more than 200 emails about any one topic ever. Um, so just the magnitude of this movement, uh, both nationally and internationally, is pretty phenomenal. As I, I, I can imagine you didn't have a chance to read 70,000 emails, but no. of the ones that you did have a chance to go through or your staff had a chance to go through, what was the consensus? The what consensus did defunding look like to them? Defund, please or abolish police, uh, the community request was that we defund the police by $50 million. Um, nice round number, uh, that's what the community wanted. At the end of the day, our combined reduction in Portland Police Bureau's budget was $27 million. And so $5.6 million came from the reduction based on our $75 million deficit uh, because of the downturn in the economy. Uh, and the other $15 million came from cutting very strategically out of Portland Police Bureau's budget, the gun violence reduction team, the transit police, and the school resource officers. In addition, taking the $1.6 million that was ongoing money from marijuana tax dollars out of the police budget and reinvesting it in community programs like uh, a Black Youth Leadership Development Program that will start uh, as soon as uh, maybe in the fall, uh, we'll have that started. Um, so uh, so a lot of changes have happened in the last uh, six weeks that if you'd have asked me six months ago if it was humanly possible, I would have la- I would have laughed and rolled around on the floor going, nowhere, no way, no shape, no no how, right? Uh, Certainly not because I didn't think these reforms were necessary and uh, visionary um, and required for us to have a more just police department. Uh, Not because of that, but because I couldn't get I couldn't get uh, two other votes in order to make those changes happen three times prior to this year. So it's not like it was the first time I put those proposals on the table. Yeah, you had stuff in the queue that was ready to go. And yes. finally, the political moment arose where you could move that stuff from the queue to the front of the line. And I Absolutely. really like, and I want to get in, in deep, if you would, in just a yes. moment about the uh, Independent Police Review, which just got yes. referred. But before that, I want to pick up on something you said uh, in response to Ambush's question, which was about the gun violence prevention. T- prevention. Yes. A, a, a dear family friend of a very dear friend of mine and even ours was Mr. Ford, who got shot, uh, who got shot, I think, 87th and around right. Gleason. And just days after that, I think there were 150 bullets flying pretty close mm-hmm. to that same intersection. What yes. is your response to critics who try to connect? the defunding of the gun violence prevention team and the spate of gun violence. Right. Well, it's kind of disingenuous to say because we stopped funding the gun violence reduction team on July 1st. 
that all of a sudden everybody who had a weapon decided it was a free-for-all and they could go out and just shoot up any neighborhood they wanted to. Uh, no employee of the gun violence reduction team lost their job. They're all gainfully still employed with Portland Police Bureau. What I will tell you is that domestic violence calls have gone up 187% in the last three months. What I can tell you is that people are income insecure um, uh, because uh, people aren't working. Uh, people are fearful of being evicted as of October 1st when a moratorium on eviction is lifted. Um, and so there's a lot of anxiety in our community. Uh, Portland isn't unique. This is happening in cities all over the country. And whether or not we have a gun violence reduction team uh, has no impact on whether or not the gun violence can be a, a, a attributed to any one factor. I say a pandemic, economic insecurity, uh, people being stuck in the house for three plus months together, and the huge increase in domestic violence and child abuse that's taken place in the last three months. So it's one of the most stressful times in American history. In American history. I mean, no other American has lived through three crises and one fell swoop that we're mm. living through right now. And so the anxiety is really high. And then you add on top of that, this global movement around racial justice. And for many folks, right, it, like life is fine. You know, we, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not racist. So life is good. Right. Um, but I think there's been this whole new awakening all across the world uh, that regardless of what we say, and, and Oregon is really good, Portland is really good at saying it's progressive, but regardless of what we say, if you look at all the social determinants of health, black people haven't moved in 30 years of record keeping. Neither have uh, indigenous people, right? Still at the bottom of every social determinant of health, whether it's educational achievement, housing, uh, business ownership, uh, uh, access to green spaces, no matter where you look, right? Um, and that's not by accident. The GI Bill didn't exclude black GIs by accident. It was intentional, right? And realtors help with that. Uh, zoning codes help with that. So we're living a legacy of uh, Jim Crow, right? And white supremacy laws and systems that were not built for people of color, right? So all of a sudden, uh, the good news is all of a sudden uh, there is both the public awareness and push as well as the political will. I, we, I've never had those two in the same place at the same time in my in my lifetime. Right. Uh, so here we are at a, at a time where the public is demanding action and not tinkering around the edges. The, the public is demanding bold, visionary uh, action. Um, and because I've been volunteering around these issues for 30 years I had a lot of stuff in the queue that was ready to come out uh, and be exposed and build relationships so that it could happen. Um, six months ago, it would not have been a 4-0 vote for my ballot measure on uh, community oversight. Of, of who, are the hardest? Who, is, who are the hardest, if you're willing to share, who are the hardest votes to get? Well, um, let me just say that uh, my biggest surprise was Amanda Fritz. Amanda Fritz was on board right away. It was like no question for her. Um, and um, the mayor asked a lot of questions, which you would expect him to do, right? Because he is engaged with police all day, every day, right? So he asked a lot of questions. But I think at the end of the day, everybody knew that we were in a moment that required us to be bold. Um, and honestly, uh, it took 
uh, just a little investigation to find out if we could do this on this ballot. Because my plan was to move something like this through the charter review process, right? Um, because I never thought I would have the city council votes to make it happen. So next year we'll have a charter review commission. I thought that'd be a perfect place Maybe to have 2021, 2022, sometime, yeah. sometime down the yeah. road. And it's still going to be in 2021, January 2021, the Charter Review Commission will start. But let me tell you about the ballot measure, if you'd like. Yeah. The ballot measure has uh, three main components. Uh, the ballot measure will create a truly independent community oversight board to uh, investigate police misconduct. They will have the ability to compel testimony. They will have the, a budget so that they can do professional investigations with professional staff, and they will be able to implement discipline. In order for this ballot measure to become the community oversight board, there are a couple of other things that have to happen. The legislature has to strengthen the arbitration bill so that once we uh, have this community oversight board, their decisions will be final. Uh, the next thing we have to do is, again, in January, starting to renegotiate the next contract with Portland Police Association. Uh, as you know, we paused it because of COVID, uh, but plan to start up again in January. Uh, and we also have an independent attorney who will be negotiating uh, for the people of Portland uh, in those contract talks. My experience in 30 years says that the city does not do an effective job when we use internal people to City Hall to negotiate those contracts. So I was able to get my colleagues to support putting a half million dollars aside so that we could hire outside legal counsel to lead those negotiations. And so as the community continues to say, right, we need to reimagine what community safety looks like. And in many communities, especially black and brown communities, it does not mean a whole lot of people with advanced weaponry yelling demands and commands at them, right? It means a more compassionate and empathetic approach. And honestly, police have one job, and that's to solve crime. They're not social workers. They're not mental health professionals. They are not experts in housing. Even though they'd like us all to believe they could do all of the above, they have one job, and that job is to solve crime. And over the last 20 years, they have gone way, way, way out of their wheelhouse, and the community has suffered the repercussions from that. Thanks, Commissioner Hardesty, Barb, Social, Chris, AJ, and the protesters from Skamania County for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.